come to the reading of God's Word. Uh, first, our continuous reading, passage by passage through the book of Genesis uh, at this time. And uh, before, we, before we read the scriptures, let us ask for God's blessing on our reading and our hearing. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, our Father, that by the Spirit, your mighty truth, your saving truth, was made known to the prophets and now to us as we read your word. Let us not be those who have ears but do not hear, but open our ears, humble us, and open our hearts to know that it is you, the living God, who speaks and reveals yourself to us in your word, who speaks to us of our need, who calls us to see Christ and to trust in him and him alone, and by your grace to respond to your word with repentance, words needed, and faith and growing love. We pray for these mercies. In the honor of your name, in Jesus' name, amen. So first from Genesis. It'll help if I get my scripture reading out, won't it? Uh, first from Genesis. <clears throat> Chapter 28, beginning of the first verse. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of people. A company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw the Canaanite women did not please his father Isaac his, fa Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, 
the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. And then the passages for our sermon this morning. Psalm 95, uh, the last part of verse 7 to the end. The first part was our call to worship at the beginning of the service. And then the sermon text, Psalm 13. Again, this is the Word of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. How long, O Lord, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Praise the Lord. And may God's blessing rest on his word in us. Amen. <clears throat> We've been singing Psalm 13 now for, what, three weeks, twice a Sunday? Well, it'll be twice this evening. Uh, so I thought it might be good to look at it and give thought to what we can learn from this prayer of David, what God intends us to learn from this prayer of David's. It is a very short song, and yet it is a gem. It's one of my favorite psalms. It arises to begin with out of the distress of David. The Holy Spirit inspires him to bring his distress to the Lord in prayer and thereby to give comfort to believers in all ages, even to us when we are in distress. Our sermon outline will follow the outline of the psalm. We begin looking at David's complaint, first two verses, then David's prayer, verses 3 and 4, and then David's renewed confidence and praise, verses 5 and 6. And, and just an aside here, I love our Psalter hymnal, but I do have a tiny quibble with the 
uh, arrangement they've given us for Psalm 13. Uh, you see the outline, two verses, two verses, two verses. That's the natural outline of this psalm. But the setting which we will sing is all true. It's good translation. The setting which we will sing only gets to that third point at the end of the last verse. It doesn't reflect the order uh, and, and the emphases of the psalm itself. So I just, I just throw that out there so that when we sing the psalm, you will, you will put the emphasis, emphases <laughs> where they belong. Well, let's begin by looking at David's complaining to the Lord. Complaining? What? Well, that's so negative. And why would the Holy Spirit cause a complaint against God to be in the Bible? Well, uh, I think we can be honest. David is complaining. <laughs> How long? How long? How long? How long? Uh, that's expressing many things, as we'll see, but it is complaining. Uh, so before, we, before you argue with me about the appropriateness of the word complaint, do you never complain? And are you not aware that when you complain about your circumstances, you're complaining about God's providential arrangements for your life? Your complaint is really with God? Face it. God sends us hard providences. He does dispose the circumstances of our life in such a way that we are sometimes just knocked for a loop. We're awake all night, fretting, imagining the worst. And isn't our first, our first impulse when such things happen? Self-pity? Why me? It doesn't seem fair. And so on. Now, let's be sure we're clear. There is complaining, and then again there is complaining. That's why we read Psalm 95, the second half, where God instructs us not to harden our hearts as Israel did at Meribah and on the day at Massa in the wilderness. What is that about? Well, go back to Exodus uh, chapter 16 and you find the people of Israel complaining that God has brought them out to the wilderness to die of starvation. And they're angry with Moses, but as the passage unfolds, God makes clear their complaint is against me. Well, God pours out blessing on them. Manna from heaven, quail in abundance. The very next chapter, they're complaining again. No, it's, as I recall, I think it's water. And they're complaining to Moses. Why did you bring, weren't there graves enough in Egypt? Why did you bring us out here to die? And Moses takes it to God, and God 
tells Moses, they're not complaining against you, they're complaining against me. And again, God, abounding mercy, not holding their sin against them and letting them die of thirst as they deserve. He opens water from the rock, and they have water in abundance. And we can look then at Numbers 11, and Numbers 14, and Numbers 16, and Numbers 20, and see that uh, Israel tested God not just at Meribah and Massa, but over and over and over, in spite of the fact that God had demonstrated his mighty power to save them out of Egypt with miracles and that God had been with them and had blessed them. But they forget and they forget and they forget and they complain and they complain and they complain. The Apostle Paul brings this to mind in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he talks about the example of Israel in the wilderness. He says, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And he mentions idolatries committed by them. Think of the golden calf. Uh, sexual immorality. And uh, we must not, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come. Christ has come for us. So that was complaining, but it was not by any means good complaining. It was really wicked complaining. It was against the Lord. They were bringing accusations of injustice and, and, uh, and hardness against the Lord who had miraculously saved them from Egypt. They're railing against uh, the Lord's servant Moses who had only ex ex expended himself on their behalf. And so that's not David in Psalm 13. That's not what he is doing. He's not making accusations against God. He's not railing against God. He's not turning to the people around him and saying, God is an unjust God. But David is taking his complaint as he does over and over in the Psalms. He's taking his complaint directly to God. One of the darkest of the Psalms. Psalm 88. One of the darkest of the Psalms is an unremitting recitation of the suffering of the psalmist. But he begins with these words, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. The Holy Spirit inspired this psalm. It's in Scripture. Because there may be many, many, many saints, maybe some among us, who, like the author of this psalm, have unremitting suffering and pain. And yet, 
God is their God. God is our God by covenant, by the saving work of Christ. And we can cry out to him night and day, bring our prayers before him that he would incline his ear to our cry. So that's David. He's not against God. He's coming to God. He's not rebelling against God's providence. He's going to God with perplexity and pain. He has real enemies who are bending every effort to put an end to him. He's in dire straits. Probably, I think probably this um, came out of the era when Saul was seeking to kill David. The Spirit, no, the Spirit of God did not move David to be confused, distressed, and to bring and, and complaining. That's not the Spirit of God didn't do that. That that's David, but the Spirit of God did move David in his distress to express that to God in honest prayer, and that gives comfort to us. Here is permission from God. From God himself, who already knows when we're miserable and what the state of our heart is in that misery. Permission from God to take our misery, even our complaints about our misery to him, without fear of rejection. Yes, our Lord Jesus, the eternal Son of the Father, knows where we're coming from. He was rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But not just on the cross, but over and over throughout his earthly ministry. And on the cross, he felt deeply the truth of David in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, I think he knew why. Because the Father, the Son, and the Spirit planned it in eternity. But he's giving expression to the anguish of the fact that God has, in a sense, turned his face away from Christ and poured out his just and holy wrath on Christ, the wrath that we deserve because of our sins. We complain because we think we deserve better, but we deserve hell. Christ, Christ bore that in our place. The Father hid his face from his Son. It's a mystery that we cannot plumb, the mystery of the relationships within the triune God, but it's real because God says it's real. Is it good to complain against God's hard providences? Well, no. It would be much better to receive with thanksgiving uh, our suffering, the trouble, hardship that comes into our lives. It would be better to receive 
these things with thanksgiving for what they are. The Father's loving discipline of his redeemed children. We read that in Proverbs 3. We heard there that God loves his children and disciplines them because he loves them, because he loves us. And so, as, as Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 6, it's much better, better than complaining. It's much better to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he may exalt us. But the fact is, we do feel complaint. And God knows it. And there's no use trying to hide it from him. That's foolish. Instead, what are we to do? We are to go to him. Go to him. That is made so clear to us in a wonderful way by Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ is no stranger to suffering and pain. He is no stranger to being lied about, attacked unjustly. Uh, he's no stranger to anything that you may be called upon to suffer in this life. And as he looks down from the right hand of the throne of God and sees us, he knows what we are going through. Not as an intellectual thing, but from experience as the incarnate Son of God who walked a path of sorrow and obedience all the way to the cross. Thank God he experienced temptation and suffering without sinning. But we're told this in Hebrews chapter 4 because it is summoning us to come to God, to come to God, and find that his throne for us is not a throne of wrathful justice, but is a throne of grace. So this brings us to David's prayer. We'll be brief here because we've probably said much of it already. Verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Ha, ha, ha. Let my foes, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So as we say, David has brought his complaint before the Lord as prayer not as indictment or accusation. To the Lord, my God. That little my is so important. When people 
who have been brought by the Spirit of God to put all their hope in Christ for salvation, have been adopted as the sons and daughters of the living God. When we go to the Lord, He's not just God out there. We're not meditating on systematic theology. But we are going to our God. You are going to my God. Not running away from God, which might be our impulse. Not attacking God. But going to him as my God. Now that privilege is not ours by right. It was purchased for us by Jesus. Now, can we, can we really speak to God as David does? I mean, these are imperatives. Consider, answer me. Well, tone of voice is everything. We can't, we can't play the tape and hear his inflection when he said it. Uh, but I think that these are the words of entreaty, not the words of hard demand. David is in a dark place. He is losing hope in his circumstances. He longs for, he is desperate for God to come to his rescue. And you know, when you lose hope completely, it really is a kind of death. And of course, people who take their lives almost always are doing so because they have lost all hope. And David's close to that here. Light up my eyes. Because my eyes right now are seeing darkness. Restore my hope. Rescue me. Now we might ask, is David being selfish? Just concerned about self-preservation. Or is he God-honoring in his prayer? Well, why do you think the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible? Uh, not to teach us to be selfish in our prayers. Uh, James makes that clear in James 4. You can look it up at home. But it certainly is true that in desperate circumstances, we can pray in a self-serving way. And when God in mercy delivers us, like Israel, we may forget. We've used God. He helped us. Now we'll go back to what we were doing before and helping ourselves. That's possible. And that happens. Maybe we've done it ourselves. But consider this. The one who is praying this prayer that the Spirit caused to be recorded in the Bible for us. He is the anointed of the Lord. If, if this comes out of the period when Saul was chasing him from place to place, he was running for his life, then he's not yet recognized by the nation as king, but he has been anointed by God, and there are people who do know it, and I think David's one of them. And furthermore, his enemies are his enemies, and this includes Paul, or Saul, I mean, King Saul, and later the pagan nations that wage war with him. 
His enemies are his enemies because of who he is. If he were Joe Blow, they wouldn't hate him. Saul didn't hate David because David was a loyal servant. He hated David because he saw in David the man who should be king, and he was jealous because people were already already seeing that David should be king. But David is publicly trusted in the Lord, in the Lord alone. He is like us who have been called to put our faith, not in ourselves, not in our works, not even in the church, but to put our faith in Christ alone. And if David goes down before his enemies, will that bring honor to God and glory to his name? Now, who are our enemies? Well, not the people who are unkind to you at work, stab you in the back maybe. <laughs> not the neighbors who are cross and mean. Not even those who persecute the church. They are they are the, uh, what we say, the tools and the dupes of the real enemy. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers in heavenly places. That's referring to the devil and his, his, his minions, his demons. That's the true enemy. And we pray for the Lord to deliver us not first of all from the bad things that happen to us, but first of all to deliver us from the temptation to unbelief and to turning our complaint into real rebellion. And I think that lies behind some of the Psalms that we read. We could go through the Psalms, dozens of them, but I think of Psalm 25. Psalm 25, the first three verses. Of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait on you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Now, what does this mean? Let me not be put to shame. Is he saying, O God, I don't ever want to be embarrassed? No. I think he means, and he says, I have put my trust in you, Lord. And if, if I go down in smoke, it will appear to everyone as if you have not been faithful to me. As if I was foolish to put my trust in you. And how will this help your people to put their trust in you? It will not honor and glorify you. Another psalm I think of is Psalm 115. This is corporate. As I say, we could look at a lot of psalms on this. But Psalm 115 uh, speaks out of a time when Israel is in trouble uh, as a nation. And the prayer here is, verse 1 and following, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nations say, where is their God? 
There's Israel in defeat in the dust. And nations are going to say, <laughs> they trusted in that God. What fools. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And the subtext there is, Lord, grant us your mercy, your blessing, your favor, your deliverance to shut the mouths of the nations and glorify yourself. Well, we could go on on that theme, but David is not in this psalm explicitly pleading the honor of God in his prayers. But it's through the Psalms. And when we are in dire straits, in deep sorrow, we may say, please, Lord, honor your great name, magnify your grace and your mercy in Christ by lifting me up, by lifting us up by enlightening my eyes to see more clearly what a great God you are and deliver me from the darkness that is mine on the edge of despair. Let people around see that you've been faithful to keep me through this ordeal, this trial that I'm going through. May my response to it, a response of thanksgiving, bring glory to your name, testify to others, that you are true and that you are real and powerful to save. I think that's the sense in which we join David in prayer when we are in similar circumstances. And now this brings us to the third point, and that is David's restored confidence and praise to God. He begins seeing what's wrong, and it's gone on, and he wonders, is it ever going to end? He confesses that he's in darkness and he needs light. But in these last verses, the tone changes completely. Now, just a note on structure, the structure of these verses. A, B, B, A. Just remember that. A, B, B. That'll, that solves all the problems. <laughs> but it, it works this way. Uh, the first and last lines of these two verses. I have trusted in your steadfast love, first line, because he has dealt bountifully with me, last line. Those two lines frame the middle two lines. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. So it's just a little... Liter a, nice, a nicety of literary style. It's not wrong to point that out, I hope. But a really wonderful transformation has taken place within David, just within the small prayer. And this can be true for us also. How? Well, I think this is instructive. There's a spiritual dynamic at work here. In bringing his anguish to God, David brought himself to God. He's not just reciting a liturgical prayer like 
rubbing his St. Christopher's medal and hoping it'll work magic. He is bringing himself to God. In the very act of crying out to the Lord, his thoughts are now focused on the Lord. And there, before the Lord, in prayer, and focused on him, all of the Lord's past mercies come to his mind. He is reminded of God's demonstrated faithfulness, of God's steadfast love. The Hebrew word here is chesed. It is the love God promises to his covenant and redeemed people. His covenanted love. His God's honor, his faithfulness is at stake in persevering to love his people. And now, brothers and sisters, where do we see God's faithfulness and love displayed? We see it in Christ. We think maybe sometimes, boy, if I had the kinds of experiences David had with God and at the hands of God, I wouldn't have any problem believing. (laughs) We have so much more than David had in the way of glorious and wonderful revelation from God of his mercy, his love, his faithfulness in Christ. Is God faithful to keep his promises? How far will God go to keep his promises? He sent his son into this world. He sent his son to the cross to bear the wrath that we deserve and rising from the dead to free us from all evil. Does God love his redeemed and sinful people? Look at Jesus. Here is love, John says, 1 John 4. Not that we love God, but that we but that God loves us and gave his son for us. Here is love. Not that we love God, but that Jesus gave himself to atone for our sin and to bring us to God. To bring us to God as sons and daughters, made alive by the Spirit, adopted into God's family, loved by the Father, so that when we do go through suffering and trial and trouble, Our heart should not be saying, oh, God must hate me now. But our heart should be saying, Father, I know this is for my good as your loving discipline, that I might grow in grace and I might grow in holiness and I might grow in dependence upon you, that I might grow in love for you. When in our deepest distress and our questioning, yeah, questioning, we call on the Lord as David did. We bring ourselves before him. We bring ourselves into his presence. 
where Christ already is interceding for us, making us in our prayers acceptable to the Father. As I said, so that his throne is not for us a throne of judgment, but of grace. We bring ourselves into the presence of God. Yes, where Christ intercedes for us and sends the Holy Spirit to help us in our praying. To encourage us in our praying. We remember there his abounding mercies to us and of course, above all, on the cross and in the incarnation and reigning of Christ at the Father's right hand for his church. Yes. But his abounding mercies to us from the day he awakened us to our sin and our need and brought us to faith in Christ and has led us day by day, year by year, event by event, and some of them harrowing, but he brought, he brought us through them. Some of us wonderful. But we have learned to see the faithfulness of God, his mercies, his abounding mercies. That's the language David uses in Psalm 13. He gives us the spirit to enliven our faith, to strengthen us against the wiles of the devil. He pardons all our sins. He reminds us that he has already defeated the devil. We may confidently say, therefore, with James the prophet of the Lord, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. <clears throat> and there, <coughs> excuse me, before our God, in our praying, we are reminded again and again and again that he really does pardon all our sins for Jesus' sake. That he will never leave us or forsake us. That is his promise sealed in the blood of Christ. That he will deliver us from all evil, which we pray for in all of our worship services. That he will restore <clears throat> joy in him, joy in Christ. That he will move us to sing to him, to thank him, to praise him. <clears throat> Pardon me. And so, let us do that. Join me in prayer and then let us sing Psalm 13. Oh, Father, we thank you that, David, your servant underwent trials not only often as a fruit of his own bad choices and sins, but also that in your dealings with him in those trials, we might see you, our God, and how you deal with us and be encouraged in our weakness, in our questioning, even even often in bitterness, that we would throw ourselves upon your mercy. We, we would run to you, to your throne of grace, pour out our hearts to you, and know that you do not refuse the prayers of your people when we present our complaints as David did. But you draw near to us in mercy and grace to forgive us, to strengthen us, to glorify yourself in us. We pray for this. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>